Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicide and mental illness that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In May of 2003, a convoy of white vans snaked through roads in central Japan. The weather was warming up and flowers were blooming. Dozens of people in the vans were clad in all white, some in jumpsuits, others in what looked like medical lab coats. They all wore white surgical masks and head coverings. When the vans pulled off the road and stopped, the people who called themselves Panna Wave Laboratory poured out. They festooned the guardrails, trees, and anything else nearby with big white cloths. The group claimed the white fabric shielded their 69-year-old guru, Yuko Chino, from harmful electromagnetic waves that might worsen her terminal cancer. And Chino needed to feel well. She was about to give a rare television interview. However, before the reporter was granted access, lab members covered them and their equipment in white. When the two sat down, Chino told the reporter a stark message. The world was ending in 10 days. She predicted cataclysmic earthquakes and tsunamis, sparked by a gravitational imbalance. She threatened that those who do not listen to this message will face death. And her message of deliverance was relatively simple. A wayward bearded seal, native to the Bering Sea, a thousand miles away, had gotten himself trapped in the Tama River near Tokyo. Chino said the end of the world could only be avoided if the confused seal was rescued and brought back home. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll discuss Japanese guru Yuko Chino and her doomsday cult, Chino Shoho. We'll hear how the sect grew and developed a scientific branch called Pana Wave Laboratory, obsessed with electromagnetic waves and extraterrestrials. Next week, we'll focus on the factors that led to corruption, assault, arrests, and death within the ranks of the group. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. 
There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hidemi Masuyama, who later changed her name to Yuko Chino, was born in Kyoto, Japan on January 26, 1934. Little is known about Chino's childhood. It appears her parents were much like many others, and she was a happy little girl. She loved her mother, who we'll refer to as Yoshiko, and aspired to be like her, tall, thin, and attractive. Additionally, Yoshiko was intelligent, curious, and constantly questing for spiritual fulfillment. Yoshiko was interested in learning about various religious traditions and spiritual paths, but ultimately she identified as Christian. But Hidemi's stable upbringing was about to change drastically. In 1942, when she was eight, her parents got divorced. This split led Yoshiko and young Hidemi to move to an impoverished neighborhood in Osaka. Luckily, they weren't out on the streets, but life was challenging. Creature comforts were few and far between, and most of the time, they barely scraped by. Despite struggling to make ends meet, the pair looked after 20 to 30 cats at any given time. Hidemi took comfort in their feline friends, but not everyone in their neighborhood approved of the vast menagerie. The owner of the local tobacco store confronted Hidemi, asking her to either get rid of some of their pets or at least prohibit them from running amok. She refused his suggestions and retorted, haven't you ever heard of animal welfare? Meanwhile, the young girl developed a reputation for weird and bizarre behavior, and some locals even described her as scary. The head of the neighborhood association even claimed that Hidemi hated all people aside from her mother. As an example, he said when Hidemi answered the phone at her house, she'd tell the caller not to phone again. Sometimes she'd even play a recording with fax machine sounds to deter the caller. Despite the challenges posed by raising Hidemi, Yoshiko was able to meet another partner and remarry. After Hidemi's new stepfather moved in with them, the preteen chafed at his presence. While the marriage might have seemed to bring stability to the family, Hidemi disliked her mother's husband, and all three were constantly arguing. The only things young Hidemi seemed to be fond of were cats and green tea pudding. When Hidemi reached her teens, around 1950, Yoshiko had Hidemi baptized as a Christian. Despite Hidemi's rebelliousness, the family hoped that a concrete commitment to faith might help to calm the wild girl down. This tactic may have worked for a time, as their hopes for more stability were rewarded. She soon attended junior college, where she proved to be a good student. She learned to write, read, and speak English proficiently. Despite her academic success and blossoming attractive looks, Hidemi's outward presentation hid a troubled young woman. She never made any meaningful friendships at college and spent a lot of time just walking and thinking. But then her thoughts started to betray her. 
She heard voices and had what she thought were either spiritual encounters or visitations from demons. These experiences tormented her. Hidemi struggled to hang on to reality and wasn't sure if what she experienced was real or what it meant. She descended into confusion and despair and was repeatedly hospitalized after multiple suicide attempts. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. It's possible that what Hidemi perceived as spiritual visitors or demonic attacks were symptoms of undiagnosed schizophrenia. When it comes to the presentation of grandiose delusions associated with schizophrenia, religious content is the most common element. According to Christian Gillieron, a psychology professor, Grandiose delusions can lead the afflicted to believe that they're a spiritual entity themselves or that they're the reincarnation of a deity. As the voices and visitations continued to haunt her, Hidemi felt untethered to reality and unsure what her role in society should be. After she finished college, she rarely left her house. When she did venture out, it was usually at night when she was known to wander the streets talking to an entity only she could see. More than once, she emerged for these night walks in the nude, which vexed Yoshiko, who was sometimes called to retrieve a kicking and screaming Hidemi. When Hidemi was in her 20s in the mid-1950s, she tried to support herself by working, but it always seemed out of her reach. Despite multiple attempts, Hidemi was unable to hold a job for any length of time. Hidemi did at least finally have a prospective love interest, and by all accounts, she fell hard for him. While we don't know his name, she claimed to be deeply in love and envisioned spending the rest of her life with him. Unfortunately, the gentleman didn't share Hidemi's feelings and broke off their relationship not long after. This newest failure devastated Hidemi, who felt she would never find a husband. Her despair led to yet another suicide attempt. Once again, she persevered and recovered. However, she declared that her recent romantic defeat made her unable to work. She now had a strong hatred of people, especially men. Not much is known about the next decade of Hidemi's life. The only anecdotes that exist are about her meandering nude through the streets late at night while talking to invisible entities. We do know that by the 1970s, when Hidemi was in her 30s, she and Yoshiko joined an alleged occult religious group called the Godlight Association. The God Light Association was founded by Shinji Takahashi. He was known for having had out-of-body experiences and claimed to receive messages from both Moses and Jesus Christ. By 1970, 43-year-old Takahashi boasted of more than 8,000 followers, including Hidemi and her mother. Hidemi's new faith seemed to bring some stabilization to her life. She felt welcomed and accepted by this guru who knew what it was like to hear spiritual voices. With this welcome, Hidemi found it easier to socialize with others and wanted to try supporting herself again. Hidemi began to make use of her college education and taught English classes out of the home she still shared with her mother. But her night walks with the supernatural entity continued. 
By the mid-70s, Hidemi came to believe that she communicated with the Archangel Michael, and shortly after, for the first time, she took on the role of a sort of religious teacher. In the mid-1970s, she made a bargain with her students. She told them if they agreed to pray with her, that she would teach them English for free. Out of that deal, Hidemi secured her first loyal followers. But she and Yoshiko were still adherents of the teachings of the God Light Association. Its leader, Shinji Takahashi, predicted that his own demise would occur in 1976. He started planning ahead, casting about for his spiritual successor. He was sure that whoever he passed the baton to, that person needed to be the reincarnation of the Archangel Michael, but he wasn't sure how to tell which of his followers contained the sacred soul within their body. After much reflection, Takahashi believed that it was his own 19-year-old daughter, Keiko, who was the angel in a past life. Astonishingly, Takahashi did in fact pass away in 1976, as he foretold. And as planned, Keiko took on the mantle of church leadership. Keiko held services on a stage, wearing a long, white robe. Her dramatic and showy presentation, combined with her youth, made some in the group feel she was playing pop star. So, despite her late father's insistence that she was the embodiment of the Archangel Michael, some in the Godlight Association weren't convinced. Some male members believed that their late guru's judgment was impaired when he selected Keiko to succeed him. They felt that any of them deserved to be the religion's figurehead more than she did. During this time of upheaval, Hidemi experienced another onslaught of voices and hallucinations. The spirits told her that she was the one true heir to the church. She began to believe it was her destiny to lead the flock. As part of this reawakening, she changed her name from Hidemi Masuyama to Yuko Chino. Her mother rallied within the group for support. Yoshiko's zeal and Chino's religious visitations won over some of the members, who pledged allegiance to Chino. But leadership mocked Yoshiko for even suggesting that Chino should take the place of Keiko. They denied Chino's claim and humiliated the pair. After this blow, they couldn't remain within the ranks of the God Light Association. Chino, her mother, and a small group of supporters made the decision to leave in 1977. But this was just the start for Chino. She now led her own sect, and she had believers who were willing to follow her till the end of time. Next, we'll learn about the cult that grew around Yuko Chino and the formation of the Pano Wave Laboratory. Listeners, looking for something a little spooky to dig into? Then check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions. Every Wednesday, explore the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow in this eerie new series. Each week, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why do black cats represent witchcraft? What's the point of carrying a rabbit's foot around with you? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem mystical or illogical or completely insane, 
But then again, do they? Follow the ParCast series Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After a challenging childhood and an ongoing battle with apparent mental illness, 43-year-old Hidemi Masuyama changed her name to Yuko Chino. In 1977, she established her own religious sect called Chino Shoho, which meant Chino's true law. The beliefs she espoused were a mixture of Christianity, theosophy, Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age, and even science fiction. She boasted that she was an emissary of the archangel Michael. Her followers referred to her as the last messiah and thought that she was to succeed Buddha, Moses, and Jesus Christ. Chino claimed that she communicated with spirits of the dead, including those of Pope John Paul II, the Greek god Zeus, and actress Audrey Hepburn. She also communed with extraterrestrial spirits, who Chino said lived in celestial spheres. The spirits told her that the discovery of a 10th planet in Earth's solar system would herald the end times. That planet would cause a series of natural catastrophes that would end humanity. But unlike many other doomsday cults, Chino didn't collect any donations from her devotees or demand tithing. The only money she made came from subscriptions to a monthly magazine called LR. A yearly subscription to LR cost 6,000 yen, which was about $12. The publication spread the word of the group's beliefs, including alleged scientific data that supported her end times claims. But the science was seamlessly combined with biblical references and teachings about occult and paranormal topics, such as the lost city of Atlantis. Support and interest in Chino and her group grew, and by 1980, when Chino was 46, she had collected thousands of followers. Over the next few years, Chino's beliefs evolved to include a paranoid obsession with the Cold War. Chino thought that Russian communists had weaponized electromagnetic waves and were trying to harm her with them. In fact, she was convinced that a mass Soviet invasion of Japan was imminent. Her flock wanted to protect her from their nefarious intentions and thought she should emigrate to the United States. One of her male supporters was in charge of working out the emigration plans. The process proved complicated, and another high-ranking member of the cult believed that it might go smoother if that man and Chino were married. So even though she'd never met him and there wasn't a ceremony, the man and Chino were legally wed in 1984. Despite having taken such a drastic step, the trip to the U.S. didn't ultimately happen. There's no concrete information on why, but it's possible there was a mix-up with paperwork or maybe Chino got cold feet. We know, despite the setback, Chino Shoho continued to grow. Chino's words spread through her magazines, which published exalting stories of her divine power. One article spotlighted a supporter who suffered a brain hemorrhage, 
The follower claimed they had lived through the brain hemorrhage because Chino's heavenly word saved their life. With stories of her power circulating throughout the country, it's no surprise that Chino gathered several thousand followers. Unfortunately, Chino's power couldn't safeguard her own health. In the 1990s, when she was about 60 years of age, Chino shared the devastating news that she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. While she didn't reveal how much time she had left, this announcement confirmed to her followers that the Russians had attacked Chino with harmful electromagnetic waves. After the announcement, Chino explained that the communists were working on a device that could hurt millions. She said the machine would use these waves to control the weather and weaponize earthquakes. Some of Chino's followers were so concerned that they formed a splinter group from Chino Shoho called Pana Wave Laboratory. Its purpose was to scientifically study electromagnetic waves, which they called Sukara or scalar waves. They hoped that by concentrating on scientific study of the harmful waves, they would be able to cure Chino's cancer and maybe even stop the destruction of the Earth. The Pana Wave Laboratory came to the preliminary conclusion that the color white was the best defense to guard against the rays that harmed Chino. Though they gave no scientific evidence, by 1995, the group dressed exclusively in white. They also made a habit of hanging large white cloths on the walls to block electromagnetic waves. Strangely, though, Chino herself didn't make the change. She instead wore tracksuits of varying colors. Her one demand was that the tracksuits be made of all natural fibers. Despite her grim diagnosis, observers commented to the press that Chino didn't seem gravely ill. And while her group's research into electromagnetic waves may have kept her safer, it also resulted in a negative consequence. Chino's husband, who was in his 70s by the mid-1990s, became disillusioned in the group's lack of focus on spirituality. The formation of the Pano Wave Laboratory and its single-minded obsession with the electromagnetic waves wasn't what he felt the group should be about. He made a public statement that due to these changes, he no longer believed in the messages of Chino Shoho and was not going to be a supporter any longer. He walked away not only from the cult, but also from his marriage to Chino. But that didn't sway Chino and the group from furthering their laser focus on the electromagnetic waves. They continued to study them and their harmful effects for the next several years. Then, in August 2002, an unexpected arrival to the Tokyo area galvanized Chino and her thousands of followers and further convinced them that the waves had negative environmental effects. Newspapers and TV broadcasts reported on a bearded seal who had lost his way, becoming trapped in the Tama River near an industrial area of Tokyo. The seal was native to the Arctic and most likely should have been living in the Bering Sea, thousands of miles away. Chino and her Pano wave followers believed that the electromagnetic waves had caused the seal to become lost. The plight of the seal and the public celebration of its arrival turned into a media darling and it was nicknamed Tama-chan, after the river it swam in. Huge crowds of citizens gathered by the river trying to spot the seal. Tokyo authorities made an official pronouncement that Tama-chan was welcome to swim in the city's river. Since Tama-chan was a cold-weather seal, there was concern that it wouldn't fare well in the summer weather, 
As much as the citizens loved seeing the seal, animal welfare organizations and other groups were created to safeguard the creature. That included the society that keeps watch over Tamachan and another called the society that thinks about Tamachan. In March of 2003, six months after its arrival, the society that thinks about Tamachan made an effort to capture the bearded seal from the river. If successful, they were going to transplant it back to the Bering Sea, where it belonged. Shortly after, the media discovered that the society was funded by a businessman named Ataro Moria, who was a known member of Pana Wave Laboratory, and the club operated under the direction of Chino. Chino wanted Tamachan rescued, partly because the water was very polluted and felt it was unhealthy for the creature. But more critically, she believed that Tamachan's misdirection due to the electromagnetic waves had upset the natural order. Removing the Arctic visitor from Japan and replacing it in the Bering Sea would bring back balance to the planet. Chino felt that safeguarding Tamachan was of paramount importance. If it turned out to be impractical to move the seal back to the Bering Sea, Panawave Laboratory had a plan B. Tamachan would be relocated to a swimming pool, lined in white, on a property owned by the cult. Unfortunately, the society that thinks about Tamachan wasn't successful in capturing the beast. It turns out trying to capture a lone seal in a large river is nearly impossible. But it only took a month before Panawave Laboratory was in the news again. In late April 2003, 16 white bands drove in a convoy through central Japan. They contained about 50 members of the cult, including Chino. All of them, aside from Chino, were clad in solid white, complete with white head coverings and surgical masks. They were on a quest to find a new home that wasn't rife with electromagnetic wave interference. For a while, all of the vans stopped in Gifu Prefecture in Kiyomi, about 250 miles from Tokyo. They pulled over at the side of a narrow road and some of the vehicles partially blocked traffic. The cultists, with their bodies shrouded in white, looked alarming to citizens. They covered anything they could in the protective color to shield themselves and Chino from any electromagnetic waves. Their activity attracted local press. Reporters gathered and questioned the cultists about what they were up to. The press's arrival turned the encampment into a major disruption of traffic that lasted several days. Due to this interference and the fact that the vans were partly blocking the road, some local citizens called the police. Others displayed signs on their nearby properties reading things like, Get out now. Despite all the activity over the few days they'd been parked, Chino herself remained hidden in a van and didn't speak to anybody. Her secrecy and her group's sudden appearance frightened the locals, for good reason. In the mid-1990s, the cult Om Shinrikyo released poisonous sarin gas in the Tokyo subways, killing 12 people and leaving thousands of others injured. Afterwards, people all over Japan were wary of insular cults that dressed alike or wore uniforms. It was difficult for the media and average citizens to see a non-traditional religious group and not fear for their safety. Benjamin Dorman, a doctor of philosophy, wrote about the moral panic caused by Om Shinrikyo. He believed that the initial failure of law enforcement and the government to recognize the danger the cult posed had psychologically predisposed the country to have fearful knee-jerk reactions to any new religion. 
In his article, Panna Wave, the New Almshin Rikyo, or Another Moral Panic, Dorman said, the Panna Wave case reveals that since the Ohm affair, a social response pattern has been established in Japan as new millennial groups and others classified as deviant appear. Dorman said that if the Ohm Shinrikyo tragedy had never happened, the Panna Wave Laboratory might not even have caught the public's attention. He wrote, Conditions in Japanese society are now such that moral panics related to religious groups can easily erupt. And the massive media coverage of Panna Wave happened at the same time as one of the final trials related to Ohm Shinrikyo. So the locals were relieved when law enforcement finally arrived days after the cultists began their occupation. The officers attempted to moderate between the residents and the Pana Wave members, but tensions only escalated and the locals wanted them gone. A spokesperson for Chino explained that they were traveling the country and looking for a haven with no harmful waves. He stated, a senior member suffers from terminal cancer after she came under a microwave attack from communist guerrillas. Cult members told the officers that the white cloths covering everything nearby were to protect their sick leader from electromagnetic waves so she could prepare for the end of the world. Coming up, Yuko Chino holds an official press conference where she predicts the imminent demise of the planet. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now back to the story. In April 2003, a convoy of white vans containing dozens of Pana Wave Laboratory members, including 69-year-old Yuko Chino, spooked residents of Kiyomi, Japan. But when law enforcement got involved, Chino commanded her convoy to move on. Their next stop would most likely be the village of Oizumi, about 150 miles away. Eitaro Moria, who had been in charge of the ill-fated attempt to capture Tamachan, had built some dome-shaped cottages there. Made wary of the press coverage by comparing Panawave to Om Shinrikyo, the local government put together a task force composed of 10 members. The deputy mayor of Oizumi said, all of us will work together to get rid of them if they do come to our village. The Oizumi Fire Brigade even got involved and pledged to sound the alert when the vans were spotted. The people of Oizumi were preparing for the arrival of the vans, which were snaking their way through the countryside. Villagers had a meeting to announce to the press that all 4,000 or so of the residents would have a sit-in in the road to block the cultists from arriving. 
But before they reached their destination, Chino and her insular flock held a press conference on May 5th, 2003. She agreed to be interviewed for the Fuji Television Network while parked on a side of a road on the way to Oisami. At Chino's insistence, Tomoya Morishita and the film crew had to wear all white and drape their equipment and cameras with white cloth. The reporter also had to take off his belt and surrender any other metal items. Members of Panawave Laboratory held up large mirrors in an attempt to deflect any damaging electromagnetic waves emitted by the cameras. Chino herself was not dressed in white, but wore navy blue pants and a light blue sweater. She announced that this was her final statement. She prophesied that the world would end in 10 days on May 15th. Chino explained that a 10th planet called Nibiru would come close to Earth, reversing the magnetic poles, resulting in cataclysm. She told Marishta, it will be caused when electromagnetic waves strike the Japanese archipelago and the delicate gravitational balance between the Andromeda Nebula and other nebulas is altered. It's worth noting that Chino isn't the only prophet to warn of planet Nibiru and its threat to humankind. In fact, the dangerous rogue planet has been the subject of conspiracy theories since the 1970s. In 2012, NASA released a statement saying that stories about Nibiru and other rogue planets are hoaxes. It said if Nibiru or Planet X were real and headed for an encounter with the Earth, astronomers would have been tracking it for at least the past decade, and it would be visible by now to the naked eye. But this information wasn't available at the time, and Chino continued her prediction, saying that these gravitational disturbances would then result in earthquakes and tsunamis. She threatened that an earthquake of magnitude 15 would occur, far higher than the Richter scale records. She stated, those who do not listen to this message will face death. But then she offered some hope. Chino said that the Earth and its inhabitants could be saved from the May 15th doomsday if the seal Tamachan was rescued from the polluted river. But to work, Tamachan needed to be returned to the Bering Sea or safeguarded in a white Panawave pool. Chino revealed that her followers had been feeding Tamachan every day for the past year. She spent 90% of her interview talking about the seal and said that the animal's safety was the most important issue to discuss. The cult leader told Marishta, I will die in four or five days from now, but that's nothing as important as Tamachan. The country had already been unsettled by the media reports of the Pana Wave convoy and comparisons to Aum Shinrikyo, but Chino claiming a connection to the media darling Tamachan did even more damage to their optics. The televised interview drummed up hate and galvanized fear of the group and the general populace. Chino's doomsday predictions gave the cult the element of danger that Japanese citizens had become terrified of. Most people would be distraught by someone issuing end-of-the-world prophecies. So what makes people join a group that tells them the world is going to end? Lorenzo Di Tommaso, a professor of religion, had noted that apocalyptic beliefs have grown over the past 50 years. He believes it's a way of tackling overwhelming obstacles or problems. Di Tommaso said, from a biblical point of view, God is going to solve them. From other points of view, there has to be some sort of catastrophe. 
Some cult members believe the world is in such a mess or is so doomed that only a spiritual or cosmic correction can fix it. And that fix gives them hope for a better future. So, Panawave members basically believe that humanity deserved to be wiped out because of all the damage inflicted on the environment by electromagnetic waves. And only a cataclysm was going to solve the problem. And Chino's emphasis on the importance of balancing the environment by saving the bearded seal did win over a few people. In addition to freaked out villagers and law enforcement, Tamachan fans started to show up to view the spectacle of the van convoy. A teenager named Mika Fujimoto traveled to provide encouragement. The New York Times reported that she joined the gathering by the vans and yelled, we support you because you care for Tamachan. The newspaper also interviewed Fujimoto, who told the reporter, I don't know about the end of the world stuff, but at least on Tamachan, we can agree. Soon, something happened that made people a little more likely to buy into the end of the world stuff. With just a few days to go before the prophecy would be fulfilled, a small earthquake struck Tokyo. The only reported damage or injury from the quake was a broken arm on a young boy who fell out of bed. But the minor quake validated Chino and her flock, and they were even more sure about the coming calamity. And even non-believers had to wonder if the end of the world was just around the corner. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next week with part two of Yuko Chino and Pana Wave. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by Christine Colby, with writing assistance by Giles Hovseth, fact-checking by Cara Mackerline, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Bad omens, good fortune, pure luck. Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions. New episodes air weekly, every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>